What? Sort of. Usually when people look grim, it's they realize that the huge problem with the weekend is that it's over. <laughs> Darn pesky weekends are just like life. So um, we were going to finish Turn of the Screw. You may remember. <laughs> no, you you got it figured out. Huh? You got it figured out. Oh no, I forgot. I I just thought we were going on. <laughs> we do we do try to bring things to a conclusion. Um, it's not just oh yeah, it's confusing. Let's go on to the next confusing thing. Um, I mean, I know you guys kind of think that that's what we do. Like, it's our job to confuse you and then give up. But, um, well, I don't know. Maybe it is. But I'm sort of for confusion on a higher level. Um, Figure it out on your own. <laughs> yeah, no. It's um, like, I don't know. I'm trying to think if that could happen in a math class. I mean, I know people are confused in math classes, but it's like... So, you know, there really is um, a tangent to a curve that has a slope, um, except that we're talking about really small numbers which are kind of undefined. So I guess let's move on to integration. Um, <laughs> that's what you think. never pushed you into the deep end and just walked away to teach you to swim? <laughs> <laughs> well, all right, so, so swim for me. What happens at the end of turn of the screw? Still haven't figured that out. <laughs> You're drowning here. <laughs> You're drowning. That's why I moved on. Actually, my parents never did. Did anyone's parents do sink yeah. or swim? I loved it. You were sunk or swum? In a lake, not in a, in a swimming pool. <laughs> <laughs> and what happened? Did you drown? It was kind of a mix of both. <laughs> <laughs> well, you're still alive. Did, yeah. you, did you need help? Um, I don't really remember. I think I kind of blocked it out a little bit. Yeah. <laughs> Whoops. Okay. Well, so turn of the screw. So you're basically thinking, well, you brought turn of the screw there. Yes, I did bring it. Yay. Not your own copy, I notice. Not worth that. I have to read it first and then decide. I see. So what, have you, what are you deciding? Okay. <laughs> Good answer. All right. Well, let's go to the very end of turn of the screw anyhow. Um, you, will no you will have noted that um, James Merrill has a cat named Maisie. Um, and J.M. has a cat named Maisie. Um, Maisie is actually a character from Henry James. Uh, that's where she gets her name. Um, one of James's, I think I mentioned this like the first class, but one of James's, I was going to say one of his great novels, but that would almost be redundant. One of his novels um, is a novel called What Maisie Knew. Um, and Maisie is a little girl. How old, we don't know. Possibly Flora's age, possibly Miles' age, we don't know. Um, but it's actually a really interesting um, book to put in um, uh, juxtaposition to Turn of the Screw because it's, even though it's a third person story, it's from the girl's point of view. Um, and the girl, um, Maisie, uh, discovers that she knows more than she thought she knew about what's going on around her. Um, and it's a, it's a really, really interesting thing. Um, so Merrill, anyhow, the, what that is is a little gesture on Merrill's part to Henry James. Um, and it's going to come up in the book. It'll be an issue in the book, uh, Henry James for James Merrill. Um, OK, we were looking at the last page of Turn of the Screw. Um, kind of floundering, splashing, um, maybe going under, maybe not, um, kicking in various ways, but not knowing which side of the pool to go to, um, treading water, and so on. At least getting our feet wet with this novel. We could say at least that, dipping our big toe in. Um, so. Remember what's happened is that Miles is um, explaining, but in a typically way, vague way, um, in that same typically vague way that James describes anything. 
um, except for Peter Quint, who, as I say, and I'll repeat, is described in um, more detail probably than all of James's other characters combined. Anyone know what color Miles's hair is? Blonde? We don't know. Flora's? We don't know. The answer is basically we don't know. Um, Peter Quint's? Red. Yeah, we know. That we know. Um, or think we know. Um, the Masters? Yeah. Um, so in that vague way, Miles is um, saying that he said things to other, other, other um, boys who said things which must have got, gotten around to the Masters. And I suppose the things, Miles says, I suppose the things that I said were too horrible. Um, that's all we know about them. So that could be anywhere from I see dead people. Um, illusion? Who sees dead people? The kid from the Sixth Sense. Yeah, okay, good. Have you guys all seen Sixth Sense? No, you should see it. It's the next thing you should do. Like tonight, you should stream it. Um, I mean, you should. <laughs> it's like... Um, it could be related to turning the screw. Yeah. Yeah, very much so. Um to um, I used the D word darn and they heard um, so you know the, the, again the question is what's happening here is there's a kind of moving target which is that there are two things that you could say characterize or could characterize what it is there are two, there are two reasons Miles might feel guilty one might be, and think of, the, and think of this as, as a kind of a mapping of the question we've been asking from the start about the governess. Is she hallucinating or are they real? Miles might feel guilty because he's such an innocent and sweet and kind and well-meaning boy that the slightest um, wrong thing to do, the thing that makes a boy a boy, the slightest naughtiness might be something that fills him with guilt. So he might be filled with guilt because he's um, used um, bad language. And he might be at a school um, which is just so obsessively careful about protecting their students from um, any kind of experience of um, real um, human life that they immediately decide to get rid of him, or they might have misunderstood what went on, although I don't think we're quite entitled to, to believe that. Um, but for whatever reason, um, it might be, as the governess is assuming, that what Miles did is actually almost nothing. Um, I think that's really important, and we didn't, we didn't pay enough attention to that because we were sort of rushing um, through class on Thursday. But it's really important that the governess is certain that whatever Miles did, the masters overreacted. And that kind of suggests that the governess is no longer thinking of Miles as the devil seed. That is, it's not that Miles is this creepy, um, angelic-looking devil figure. Um, Miles, at his worst, she has come to conclude. Miles, at his worst, she has come to conclude, is still a victim of people in power. Um, at his worst, he's a victim of Peter Quint. F what Flora did seems so much more than simply being victimized by Miss Jessel, though. Um, that is to say that Flora simply lies, even though Miss Jessel is right there. This is all under the sign of the governess's point of view. Um, so if, if in, let, let me put it this way, Turn of the Screw is um, really good value because you have two novels, at least two novels, in one set of words. Um, you have a really good ghost story, um, where the ghosts are real and the governess is trying to protect the children, and that's a really good novel. And then you can also read the, read the same set of words and get a really penetrating psychological um, 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 uh, plumbing of the depths of um, hallucinatory hysterical madness. And same set of words, two different novels. Um, so that's really good. Um, and um, we're now talking about the first novel, the novel in which the ghosts are real. So in the novel in which the ghosts are real, what Flora does is really, really makes her much more horrifying, much more scary 
than we had been ready for, which is she simply lies. She sees Miss Jessel and she lies and leaves the governess twisting in the wind as Mrs. Gross chooses between a governess who sees the ghost and knows that Flora sees the ghost and Flora realizes that the very fact that the governess is telling the truth can be used to discredit the governess completely from, um, from the audience who's judging. Mrs. Gross, in a sense, is the jury. And um, so Flora just lies, and it's terrible what she does. I mean, that really is something bad that she does, which is to deny it. Um, if she'd gone off crying, if she had, you know, run, run away, if she'd said, I don't want to, I don't want to, I can't talk about this anymore, that would have been understandable. But she just lies. Um, and that's awful. Nevertheless, the governess now is simply will not believe that Miles can have done something equivalently awful, which would be something that um, the masters would um, see as bad enough to um, expel him from school. And so it's on some level, she's come to trust Miles completely. Now, if you ask why in this first novel she's done so, um, one answer, it, it would be an interesting question why. Um, there is an answer, I think, at least one answer. There's probably more than one. Um, but I think one answer might be, look, Flora's just done this thing to me, um, and the children have a victory. They've defeated me. But look, here's Miles, and he's being nice to me. And he's not trying to gloat over their victory. He somehow... Um, wants to be friends. They weren't going to give it up, but they want to be friends. And she, she realizes she has some real insight into Miles at that point, which is that he's not a bad kid no matter what else is happening. Yeah. I mean, we didn't really talk about this in class, but the whole, the whole thing that Flora does is a ruse to get the governess out of the house so Miles can steal the letter. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But, yeah. But the governess already burned the real letter. Right. Sealed up an envelope with a fake letter in it. Mm-hmm. Which... And now she has evidence of Miles' guilt. She forced right. him to show his hand by making him steal the letter. Right, exactly. So nice. So in a sense, she, made, she wins the victory. Good. That, in, over Miles, if not over Flora. Okay, good, good. Um, and she thinks that she, yeah, she thinks she needs she to do that. forces him to come out and feel bad. Right. At least about that he knows something's wrong. Right. And that, and that has the effect of, me, of making it the case that the children can't be as um, invulnerable um, to her tactics as for a minute it looked like they were. Part of the thing that would make Flora really evil is if it turns out that despite the governess knowing everything she knows, um, knowing the whole truth, it doesn't do her any good because the children are so much better than she is. I mean, they have absolute uh, command of the game, um, a game that she's still stumbling through, although trying really hard to play well. Um, but then you're right, Miles is, it turns out she doesn't. Miles does have to give something up. He does admit something to her. And the very fact that he admits something to her is for her, something, and something Flora never did, is for her a sign that he's actually not irretrievable. And the masters who expelled him from school treated him as irretrievable. If you expel someone from school, it means the school can't help you. Um, you have to simply be excised. Um, so she's sure on some deep sense that Miles is still um, on the side of good, is still good. Um, so, and not as bad as, um, well, not bad, just to, just to use the starkest terms, um, what Miles says is the masters said that he was too bad. And the governess doesn't think that, she thinks he's good. Um, and there's something really, um, I don't know what pathos in the fact that those are the words that, original, that, that ultimately apply to the children, those original words from childhood, are you good or are you bad? Um, you know, those words become so much more complicated when you get older. Um, but just the idea when you're a child that sometimes your parents say you're good and that's hearing that you're good is a reward and sometimes they say that you're bad and hearing that you're bad is a punishment. 
Um, and that's what, that's the language Miles is using, the language of very early childhood, good and bad. Um, and he thinks he's bad, but the governess is saying no. Then remember her sternness. She says in a stern way, stuff and nonsense. Um, and then what were these things, she says, in a tone you could say of um, sort of um, uh, put on incredulity or angry incredulity. Um, like when we say to someone, how dare you? Um, that question is an incredulous question. Like, here's you, and then here's this thing that you did, and it's unimaginable to me that you would dare to do it. Um, that's the rhetoric of that question. How dare you? Um, not, so you dare to do something really bad. It's, I can't imagine that you would dare to do something that bad. Um, so incredulity, stern incredulity is her tone. And when she says, what were these things? And then again, she says, my sternness, we already did this, but it's worth going through slowly. My sternness was all for his judge, his executioner, yet it made him avert himself again. And that movement made me, with a single bound and an irrepressible cry, spring straight upon him. For there again, against the glass, as if to blight his confession and stay his answer, was the hideous author of our woe, the white face of damnation. So she, see, so she says, how dare you? Her sternness is for his judge, his executioner. That, of course, is what she may turn out to be, both his judge and his executioner. Um, but he flinches when she uses that stir, those stern words. Remember, he doesn't see anyone in the window. We're about to find out. So she says, how dare you? And he averts himself. And then as he averts himself, um, she notices, um, simply simply responding to him averting himself, Peter Quint in the window. So she jumps on him because she thinks Peter Quint is trying to stop him from confessing. Um, and he never does. Remember that there again against the glass as if to blight his confession and stay his answer. So we never get the answer because um, that's telling us she's still looking for the answer but hasn't gotten it yet. What were these things? To stay his answer, there was the hideous author of our woe, the white face of damnation. I felt a sick swim at the drop of my victory and all the return of my battle, so that the wildness of my veritable leap only served as a great betrayal. So she responds so wildly to what she sees in the window that she betrays herself to Miles as earlier, and much more obviously, she'd betrayed herself to Flora. She's there, she's there, the, the, how, the, the, the horrid coward, the coward horror, it's, she's right there. That was a betrayal, that was a mistake. Now she's betraying herself again. Um, the wildness of my veritable leap only served as a great betrayal. I saw him from the midst of my act meet it with a divination, that is with a guess, and on the perception, now she perceives, that even now he only guessed, and that the window was still to his own eyes free, I let the impulse flame up to convert the climax of his dismay into the very proof of his liberation. So he's dismayed because she's acting crazy um, uh, when there's no ghost there, but there is a ghost there. And therefore, the fact that he does, she realizes he doesn't see the ghost and that's why he's dismayed. He may just be dismayed because this crazy governess is jumping on him. Um, but she's taking it that he's dismayed because he doesn't see a ghost. But the ghost is there, as he knows from the governess's response. Um, and therefore, she realizes that she can now prove to him, the very proof of his liberation, prove to him that he doesn't have to worry about Peter Quint anymore because he's there but can't make himself known to Miles. Peter Quint has been exercised from Miles's perception, from Miles's consciousness of the world. Um, and she's done that for him. So, no more, no more, no more, I shriek to my, to my visitant. It's worth noticing that, not our, but to my visitant, as I try to press him against me him there being Miles. Is she here? 
Miles panted as he caught with his sealed eyes the direction of my words. Then, as his strange she staggered me, and with a gasp I echoed it, so again, is she here? And then um, the governess says, she? Um, then, as his strange she staggered me, and with a gasp I echoed it, Miles responds to her saying, she? Miss Jessel, Miss Jessel! He with sudden fury gave me back. So, that was the surprise. She thought that Miles realized that she saw Peter Quint. But of course she'd been very careful never to mention Peter Quint to Miles. The only ghost that the children know that she has seen or believes she's seen is Miss Jessel. So Miles doesn't see anyone in the window. And oh no, there are two possibilities now. One is that he's cured, that he's liberated, that he um, has been saved from commerce with ghosts. And, um, I'm sorry, no. Miles doesn't see the ghosts in the window, and for us, there are two possibilities. Uh, forget the governess. Um, one possibility for us is that there's no ghost. And so, of course, he doesn't see a ghost because there are no ghosts. The other possibility is there are ghosts, and the governess is right that he's been liberated, but he doesn't know that he's been liberated because he assumes that if there's a ghost around but he doesn't see it, it must be Miss Jessel. So one possibility is there are no ghosts, but the only ghost he knows that the governess thinks there is is Miss Jessel. The other possibility is um, he sees Peter Quint, um, Flora sees Miss Jessel, and the fact that there's a that he knows there's a ghost there but he doesn't see it leaves only Miss Jessel to be the ghost um, who might be there. Um, so again, we don't have proof yet as to whether Miles has actually had commerce with ghosts. If he had said, is he here? Is Peter Quint here? Then the governess would have her proof. Because the proof would be, I never mentioned Peter Quint. I never said a word about Peter Quint to either of you children. So the fact that the ghost you either see or don't see is Peter Quint would prove that the governess was right. That would be the slip. You know, it's a mystery story slip. You all know that kind of slip, right? Which is um, when the person who is pretending to be innocent um, said, um, uh, well, I couldn't have done it because um, uh, I would never fire four bullets into a dead body. And um, then the detective says, how did you know there were four bullets? You know, so that moment in um, a mystery. You all know that moment when when the criminal gives herself away by um, knowing information that she hasn't been told. Um, so that's what the governess wants. If Miles were to say, "Is Peter Quint here?" that would give him away. He doesn't say, "Is Peter Quint here?" and that means that we still don't know. Why would he think Miss Jessel might be there? Well, I seized, stupefied, his supposition, some sequel to what we had done to Flora. So Flora, sequel here means something like consequence. It, um, the sequel, the thing that follows. It's the same sequence, sequel, in the same word. Consequence means um, a, something, a sequel that comes with something. Um, it follows upon, it follows with, it necessarily follows. Um, so some sequel, something that follows upon what we had done to Flora. Quite chilling words. She now feels she's done something to Flora, who's sick. What we had done to Flora. So how would that be a sequel to what we had done to Flora? Only if Flora had said to Miles, um, the governess saw Miss Jessel by the lake. And that I take a purposely ambiguous way of putting that, because it could mean, um, oh no, the governess saw Miss Jessel, we've been busted. Or it could simply mean, I didn't see Miss Jessel, but the governess did. That's kind of weird, but that's what happened. But now I feel really sick and want to be left alone, and certainly don't want to be around this governess who sees ghosts. So Flora and Innocent might have said one or the other of those two things, meant one of the, or the other of those two things. To, um, when speaking to Miles, no. yeah. 
they describe there's only one interaction between Miles and Flora before Flora leaves. Mm-hmm. Do they actually speak to each other during that? Well, I, no, we does ne- the governance explicit not governance does uh, Miss Gross explicitly say whether they speak or not? She doesn't say, but we know. Mm-hmm. But James makes sure that there's time. The governess, I think, goes off alone to her room, and James makes sure there's time for contact. She doesn't. She doesn't um, quarantine Flora, which is what she should have done. Um, sh- and so James makes sure that there is time for them to have spoken. And all you need is some sequel to what we've done to Flora. That's all you need um, to know that um, there's some relation to what's just happened and uh, what happened to Flora. I guess if you think about it, there are three possibilities. I always assumed that um, there's no reason to think that Miles and Flora haven't spoken about this, and there is no reason to think to think it. But on the other hand, it could be Mrs. Gross who said it to Miles. That would be another way that it's a sequel to what we had done to Flora. Uh, Mrs. Gross might have said, oh, young Master Miles, you mustn't you mustn't worry so much about the governess. Um, she seems to have seen Miss Jessel by the lake, but we're not going to let her trouble us anymore, are we, Master Miles? So that could be another possibility. And the third possibility, of course, is that Miss Jessel or Peter Quint could have said to Miles, um, this is what the governess did. Um, so, but, but there's certainly communication. Miles knows essentially what's gone on what the governess has said at the lake. Um, he knows that the governess saw a vision of Miss Jessel. That much he knows. Um, and so now he says, is she here? And the governess realizes that the she there is who? Yeah, that, that Miles looks in an empty window and wonders, is Miss Jessel there? Um, because he knows that the governess has seen the figure of Miss Jessel. And um, so she still doesn't know then whether Miles has ever seen that figure or whether Flora has ever seen that figure. Um, All that she knows is that Miles knows that she has seen the figure of Miss Jessel. Okay, so people still following? so I see stupefied a supposition, some sequel to what we've done to Flora. But this made me only want to show him that it was better still than that. Better than Miss Jessel. It's not Miss Jessel, but it's at the window straight before us. It's there, the coward horror, there for the last time. At this, after a second in which his head made the movement of a baffled dog's on ascent and then gave a frantic little shake for air and light, he was at me in a white rage, bewildered, glaring vainly over the place and missing wholly though it now, to my sense, filled the room like the taste of poison, the wide, overwhelming presence. It's he? So, um, what does that question mean? Yeah? I mean, it's, it's keeping with the ambiguity till the bitter end, and we all really, really want to think that he means, oh, it's Peter Quint, but it could mean another ghost, you know. Yeah, but why would he know the ghost was male? Um, yeah. Right. She said she? Yeah, yeah, yeah exactly. Also, exactly, it's just the binary opposite. Oh, wait, but, I mean, if you read, like, one more line, it says Peter Quinn. Yeah, yeah, but just wait. Um, the point, however, is, is, first of all, the question is, it's he? Um, and that is a question where... The italicized he there, we now see partly what the amazing purpose that James had for the um, misunderstanding between Mrs. Gross and the governess. Oh, that's how he likes them, young and pretty. But of whom did you speak when you said he? Well, that's his way, the masters. In other words, that we've already been prompted to notice that um, the question of the pronoun, the mention of a pronoun, using a pronoun and focusing on the pronoun itself. So not, not only using it, but mentioning it. Is this a distinction people know? Use versus mention. It's like a really crucial distinction when talking about language. So when I was in sixth grade, um, our ridiculous sixth grade teacher 
was sick, and our and the kindly principal of my school came and taught the class, but he was really old and had very little to say. But he was very kindly. We all liked him, Dr. Neal. Um, and uh, so he did, he really didn't have much to say in that class, but he decided he would show us a little bit of fun by um, teach us something that would last, you know, last until we were teaching English literature decades later, um, which is, um, he said, I can prove to you that every word is a noun. Um, he said this in a um, in his soft spoken English accent. So this, God knows how, he must have been in sixth grade when he learned this little thing from his doddering old headmaster. Uh, mm -hmm. um, so um, we had just learned that, you know, there were eight parts of speech, et cetera, et cetera, and now he's going to prove to us that every word is a noun. So um, he said, give me a word. So some kid says cat. And he says, well, of course cat is a noun. <laughs> um, <laughs> Sixth graders. Yeah. So... Um, so another kid says, there, T-H-E-R-E, there. So he goes to the board and he writes on the board, there is a five-letter word. Um, so it's a subject of a sentence and it's a noun. Um, so what he was playing havoc with is really just crazy, the way we responded. I mean, it was just pure mayhem. Bedlam. Um, what he's playing havoc with is the difference between use and mention. Um, this is actually important for when you write papers. Um, so when you use a word, you're just using the word. Um, you're saying um, um, whatever you're saying. Like when I use the word use in the sentence, when you use a word, you're just using the word. I'm just using the word use. When you mention a word and you say um, use is a three-letter word, or use is how we say y'all in New York. Use guys. Um, then we're actually mentioning the word. Now, one thing that that use don't really make much of a mistake on, but occasionally use do, is, um, but a lot of people do when they're writing English papers, and I'm sure you, or writing papers in general, and I'm sure you guys have been, um, you, you write as well as you do because you must have been taught not to do this, is to say something like, um, when Hamlet says to be or not to be, he is um, showing that he is anxious about what his life is like. Um, or when they say, they always mean the author of a work. That's a mistake that everyone makes. Um, when they say, um, as such a house should be, they seem to mean that, um, that spooky houses at Christmas are good for ghost stories. Um, and you should never quote in a way that makes your sentence ungrammatical if you leave out the quotation marks. So you would never say, when they say as a house should be, you'd have no idea what that meant. Or you know the famous um, riddle is uh, to punctuate the following sentence: John, where James had 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 a better effect on the teacher. Have you heard that? Do you know that? Okay, well I leave it to you for an exercise after class. It's John, where James, followed by the word had eleven times, followed by the phrase a better effect on the teacher. And the only way you can figure it out, I will say, is. No, I'll just tell you. Do you want to know? Yes. Want to figure yeah. out. You don't want to spend the rest of your day just spacing out into this stupid question? Much as I'd love to. Much as you'd love to. Um, John and James are both students. They are asked, which is proper in a sentence? Do you want to write had had or just had? Like, um, uh, yesterday he had um, fish, but the day before, which was odd because the day before, then is it... He had um, latkes, or he had had latkes. So yesterday he had fish, but the day before he had had latkes, or yesterday he had fish, but the day before he had latkes. So which is correct? The answer is had had is correct. So um, John and James are given a little quiz, and John puts had, but James puts had had on his quiz. So John, where James had had had, had 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 had, period, had had, had had 
a better effect on the teacher. Yeah, see? Thought it wouldn't, but it did. Um, so now, of course, this can go, go on infinitely because you could say... But that's two sentences because... That's fine. It's just an utterance. You could say, Bert, where flesh had had... Had 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 a better effect on the students. Sorry. Podcasting it, but I. Yeah. So. Um, but that's a use mentioned distinction. If you say, I had, 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 then you're using the first had, I had, but then you're mentioning a phrase, had, had, a six-letter phrase, a noun. Had, had, has six letters. So you always mention nouns. Anytime you can turn a word into a noun or any way that guarantees that a word is a noun, that's mentioning rather than using. Um, and anytime you're just using a word, um, then you're just using the word without mentioning it. So in that sense, what's, what's come up here is a kind of um, use mention dynamic, which is that um, James has Mrs. Gross and the governess talking about the fact that she has used the word him or his or he, um, but then the governess mentions the word that Mrs. Gross has used, and they talk about the word. So she uses a word, Mrs. Gross mentions the word that she's just used, and then they talk about the word, which is they both mention it after that. And then Mrs. Gross says, I was using the word we are now mentioning to refer to the master. James does that so that we're prepared to understand in the rapidity that we fly through these last sentences without even pausing for breath, that we will have a subliminal memory of the fact that mentioning a pronoun um, comes up in a context where we don't know what the pronoun refers to. So it's he asks Miles, and if that's a question of use, what it simply means is it's Peter Quint. But if it's a question of mention, what Miles is saying is, you mean it's quote he unquote. It's that's the right pronoun. You mean it's the two-letter pronoun that we should be using here, not the three-letter pronoun. So it's he, which is a two-letter pronoun, which makes it a noun. So notice that it's a pronoun, but he's, he might be using it as a noun, the way um, um, run is a three-letter word. There you're using the word run as a noun. Um, he is a two-letter word. You're using the word he as a noun rather than a pronoun. So it's he, it's that's the right pronoun to apply to him. So he's using the word he as a noun. That's one possibility. Or the other is he's just using the word. Oh, it's he, meaning Peter Quint. That's what we don't know. I was so determined to have all my proof. So that proves that it's not all her proof yet. She needs more than that. I was so determined to have all my proof that I flashed into ice to challenge him. Whom do you mean by, quote, he, unquote? So what is she doing? Using or mentioning? Mentioning. mentioning. Absolutely mentioning. Now, the thing about italics is we don't know with italics. Um, it's a general rule about italics that we don't know whether something is being used or mentioned. Um, the history of punctuation, which I know a little bit about, um, survives in certain rules that you use when you're writing papers still. 
um, which is that have you been given a rule for when you put quotation marks around a title and when you italicize a title? No. Um, you know, underlining is actually that's a typographical convention. Are you told to underline titles? Have you been told that? Um, I think when you write papers now, you italicize them. Um, but if you're writing by hand or if you're writing a letter, you underline because how do you italicize? Um, I mean, you can, but. Um, the general rule is the reason you underline, you, you used to be taught to underline titles is because that's how printers understood that something was italicized. If you underline something and then send it to a publisher, everything underlined will appear italicized in print. Um, so underlining is just a convention for italicizing. The general rule is some titles get quotation marks around them and some get italicized. And the general rule today is that um, italics go for longer works, novels, and so on, and quotation marks go for shorter works. So you talk about W.H. Auden's quote lullaby, unquote, but Henry James's italicized turn of the screw. Um, what that rule, though, is um, just a kind of strange relic of the fact that quotation marks and italics um, have traded uses um, somewhat promiscuously um, since the invention of italics, which, are, which go way back, way, way before quotation marks. Italics were first used in the 15th century. Quotation marks really not used at all till the 18th century. Um, if you read, you may have noticed this, that if you read um, older versions of Paradise Lost, for example, or 16th or 17th century literature, proper names are always italicized. Have people noticed that? In, so if you, you will. So if you just grab um, an original, original spelling edition of Paradise Lost, every proper name, then Adam said to poor, delightful Eve, um, or if you read the King James Bible, you notice that some words are italicized. Have people noticed that? For he is an honest man. And you say, why is an italicized? Um, all of those. Um, come from a basic rule that italics and quotation marks have in common, which is that these are words that are being, that are given to the author or the text from elsewhere. So a proper name is not a name that the author invents. The author is saying, here's this person, Adam, but that comes from elsewhere. And that, so when we italicize titles in books, that's a relic of the fact that proper names always used to be italicized. Um, before the 18th century, quotations were also italicized. Italics, come, close italics, he said, would be a typical thing. Or, I will meet you tomorrow, said the man. I will meet you tomorrow will be in italics. Um, quotation marks eventually replaced that, but originally, that was done in italics. Um, in translations, italics are words that are added to the text to make it make sense in English. So, um, you know, um, if you look at the King James Version of um, the Shema, it's here, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Um, but it's not, it shouldn't be is screamed out. It's that the Hebrew is, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord one. Um, and the is is what the translators put in, in order to make it make sense in English. You don't need it in Hebrew, you need it in English. But they italicize it to show that it's not part of the original text, it's something that comes from elsewhere. So quotation marks and italics always indicate a piece of language that is added from elsewhere to the thing that you're reading. Whether it's what someone said, here's what I'm quoting, whether it's a title of something, whether it's a word added to make a translation make sense. All of those are added. Um, so the she here, whom do you mean by quote, he, unquote, and it's, sh it's he italicized. Um, those are both very related ways of mentioning the word he. The italics makes it unclear whether Miles is, is emphasizing or mentioning. But the governess, in order to be very clear, 
turns in her response to him, turns that into an absolute mention. Whom do you mean by, quote, he, unquote? We know that that can't be, she can't be using the word why. If you're listening to this as you jog. Yeah, but just purely grammatically. Why doesn't it make grammatical sense? She uses whom, and yeah. if it, if it, what do you mean by him? It would be. And then, well, it would be she, she should have said, "Who do you mean by he?" Or not what whom. do you mean by he? Well, no, no, no. You got it right the first time. You said him. Yeah, if she were speaking you mean by, by him, him, would be proper. Right. Or if she wanted to be proper using he, it would be who do you mean by he? If it were, if she were being grammatical. Right. Right. But the point is, whom do you mean by he? If you just heard someone say that. Um, without having any context for it, you would think that they, that they didn't really know English, that they were using bizarre grammar. And whom do you mean by he? Um, give it to I. Um, so there was a poet um, who was up for the job that Olga got um, many years ago. The poet I, do people know about her? She's in the Norton. Um, and her name is spelled A-I. Um, she had a one-syllable name, and it was A-I. And if you called her up, um, and you got her answering machine, um, what it said is, this is the poet I. Um, because she couldn't just say, this is I, because she would say, I know that already. Um, so what she had to make sure was that you knew that I was her name, which meant that she had to, she had to worry about whether you would think that she was using the word I when she was actually mentioning it. Why not just use her first name? Because she, she was a one-named person. Oh, Jesus. <laughs> if you get a book, if you look her up in the library, it's just I, A-I. Um, uh, when she died, which she did. Um, she more names. No, 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 she took away names. That was her, you know, the I way actors. No, she, wa she liked being this person who was simply known as I, but um, it would sometimes get her into trouble, like when she bought plane tickets or, or left messages on an answering machine. Um, or she would call, you know, she actually called me to rebuke me because we didn't hire her. Um, but she had to say, this is the poet I. She couldn't say, this is just I. This is I. Um, so, um, and when she died, the New York Times obituary for her said, um, the poet I has died. But that's all they could say about her. But, you know, what if you just had a sentence, you know, I, I can has cheeseburgers? Um, or the poet I can have cheeseburgers. Um, I can have, <laughs> I has cheeseburgers. Well, yeah, she did when she visited. I, I had a cheeseburger. Um, <laughs> You're killing so, Maya. <laughs> can we please finish the book, please? No, 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 well, we have plenty of time. Tomorrow. Okay, so, no, 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 this is good. This is all we have to get to. Um, I was so determined to have all my proof that I, that I <laughs> flashed into ice to challenge him. Whom do you mean by he? Peter Quint, you devil, his face gave again round the room its convulsed supplication. Where? Um, so he doesn't see Peter Quint. She hugs him. He dies. But when he says Peter Quint, <laughs> that part is unimportant except that he has to die for one reason, which is that he doesn't confirm whatever it is that he means by Peter Quint, you devil. Now, so the question is, um, how does he get Peter Quint if the ghosts aren't real, oh, or is that the saying. proof? That's what you're getting at. Is he using Peter Quint or the mentioned? Right, exactly. So is it that who else could it be? That is, she's a governess. She teaches him. She teaches him in the Socratic way of getting, getting her students to go step by step, ask them a question, ask them the next question, ask them the next question. So um, ask, ask them, so is he using or is he mentioning the word he? Um, and then, well, he says Peter Quint. And then the Miles-like good student says, ah, I see what you're getting at. Is he using or mentioning Peter Quint? So again, he's guessed. She's a good teacher, and he guesses the right answer. And she confirms it sometimes by pretending not to confirm it. So she says, whom do you mean by he? And his answer is, well, who could it be? If Miss Jessel is the ghost, who's the only other possibility? Peter Quint, he guesses. 
but he cannot believe that she has done this to him because she's, she is crazy. Just the way she said to Miss Jessel, um, to Flora, there's Miss Jessel. Now she says to Miles, ha, Peter Quinn, right at the window. And he can't stand it. He, th he was giving her the benefit of the doubt, but he just can't stand it. So he says, Peter Quint, I know the answer. You devil. And that's the bad word he used at school. He said of some master, you know, he's a devil. And he got kicked out for that. One possibility. Or the other possibility is um, it's, he turns to the window and he says, Peter Quint, you devil. As though he's, she's right. He's one. So the question now is the word you. It all comes down to that. Is the you Peter Quint, or is the you the governance? Now we know why you chose this book. Yeah. It all hinges on grammar. <laughs> yeah. Um, you said before, a long time ago, two reasons that Miles might be guilty. One is that he's yeah. so innocent that the like, slightest wrongdoing makes him feel guilty. Yeah. He's in an overprotective school. Right. never said that that's not that he says, you know, I'm, I'm, I've learned all about sex from, from, from watching Miss Jessel and Peter Quint describe to me and my sister what it's like. And boy, is it interesting. I mean, he um, kisses the governess full on the mouth, so. Yeah. Yeah, which is either innocent or not. You know, it doesn't seem very innocent. Well, I, but it no, can yeah. be. It could be. Little kids do. How That's what, that, by the way, notice that full on the mouth kiss is what uh, Miranda is going to do to J.M., in uh, section F of the Book of Ephraim. Okay, just quick question. Are you liking it? Yeah. The Book of Ephraim. Yeah. Yeah. All right. So we will. Um, and has everyone gone through? How far you've gone through D? Yeah. Okay. So um, just if you can get through F for Wednesday, but obviously we won't. But it's still worth. Um, it's still worth doing. How does anybody read this as Miles being Douglas? I don't know. That makes no <laughs> sense to me. Yeah. Um, yeah, some people have already gotten them in. So, but, but since we're now done with Turn of the Screw, um, yeah, definitely now's the time to write them up. If you want, sure. Yeah, just send them back if you do that. Yeah, because I got yours this morning, right? Yeah. Okay, so if you want to add, yeah, I haven't looked at them yet, so if you want to add, do. do. I'm 